Welcome uh, to week three of this book of Jonah. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, been looking at this cracking story, and I'd encourage you, if you're joining us for the first time, either here in the room, joining us online, do have a read through the Old Testament book of Jonah. It is a brilliant story. Whether you're somebody who's call yourself a Christian, whether church is something that's new for you, join in, have a read. It's a brilliant, brilliant story, let alone what God might be wanting to say through it. And just wanted to draw your attention every week, if you've been kind of joining us, you'll have seen there's a poem alongside every week. These come from this book, which is called You, Jonah. Uh, And I just really encourage, if you're a reader and you like poems, this is a lovely, lovely little book uh, that basically unpacks Jonah, but in a series of poems from the 1970s. Get out of that. It's a really, really great book. Uh, And this week, as I was preparing, I happened to come across this cartoon, which is going to be on the screen, which beautifully, in a sense, summarizes some aspects of Jonah from Peanuts, where you've got there, why are you always anxious to criticize me? I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. But what about your own faults? I have a knack for overlooking them. Maybe there's some truth in that as we jump in with Jonah. And if you've been joining us so far, you'll know the story. Jonah, a prophet, God's man, told by God to go to Nineveh, the kind of great enemy, the brutal enemy of the ancient world. And Jonah runs in completely the opposite direction, gets on board a ship to Spain rather than to modern-day Iraq. On the ship, massive storm comes, loads of stuff happens. Jonah gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by this big fish. Inside this fish has a massive change of heart, apparently, and has praise out to God, God, I need help. And therefore, the fish vomits Jonah up. And today, chapter 3, what happens next? And there's four things this morning that we're going to draw out of this chapter. And did you notice the verses on the screen, how the reading was read to us, verses 1 to 3? The language. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And if you've been with us, you'll know back at chapter 1, it's almost the exact same language. Chapter 1, language. Chapter 3, language. But now Jonah goes. It was a rise, go, and he went the opposite direction, and now arise, go, and he went to Nineveh. And what a turnaround, and I think it illustrates this one point, first thing for us today, and it is this. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your world, whatever your experience, whatever's going on in life, whether you'd call yourself a follower of Jesus, it is never, ever too late to turn to him. Jonah disobeyed, literally going in the opposite direction. God interrupted that, and a storm and a fish, literally saving his life. And now Jonah goes in the correct direction. Friends, it is never too late for you to follow God's call for your life. As Judy was sharing last week, and if you didn't catch it, do look back on YouTube. Jonah's experience in the fish, which was almost like a death experience, didn't get in the way of God's call. In fact, it saved him so that he could fulfill God's call. The author, Jonathan Martin, says this, Whatever is death for our ego is liberation for the soul. Certainly that's true for Jonah. He had failed big time. And God saved him with an amazing rescue that may not have felt like it to him at the time. And as a result, he then followed God's call. 
And some of us, if we are honest, here in the room, you at home, you worry that because of what's going on in your world, your circumstances, your actions, someone else's actions, that you've somehow missed God's best for your life. And the dreams that you thought you had that God was going to do through you, you wonder if you've missed them. Friends, the story of Jonah reminds us it's never too late, however old or young you may be. Uh, I was really encouraged a little while ago, someone in Riverside who's in retirement phase of life. Very clear, I talked about them doing something within the life of the church, and they said no, because in this season, they were doing this particular aspect of ministry. They'd sensed a new opportunity growing. And I want to say to you, particularly if you are in that stage of life, you may be wondering, looking at Riverside, seeing loads of young people and thinking, am I past it? Friends, it's never too late. God wants to use you. Never too late. The best days may actually be ahead, particularly if you've had stuff that certainly wouldn't be what you're choosing, that almost was a death to some aspect of your life, like Jonah. God may have been saving you in that moment, may have been doing things in you that enable this next chapter to be the greatest yet. It's never too late, friends. The best days may be ahead. But despite Jonah's change of plan, he's going to Nineveh. Yes. There are still loads of hints that despite his watery grave experience, he still hasn't learned the lessons he needs to learn. Verses 3 to 5. Here it is on the screen. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. What do you notice about his preach? It's pretty short, isn't it? Some of you might be hoping. Eight words in English, only five in Hebrew in the original. Very short, and there's lots of things he doesn't say. So what's going on here? And this has actually been understood in two different ways. Commentators disagree about what's going on here. Some people think that Jonah clearly said a lot more than just those eight words. You know, that's the sort of summary of his sermon. He had a carefully crafted thing with four points in a room, TV, all that. So he clearly said more, doesn't he? I mean, why? Because God is mentioned, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, and what Jonah said didn't mention God. So clearly, he must have said more than just those eight words, surely. Maybe that's right. Whereas others suggest that what's happening here is Jonah is living up to his reputation. He's engaging in what you could call a bit of prophetic sabotage. He's doing what God wanted but he's kind of doing the bare minimum. So he's deliberately not telling the Ninevites the way out. I remember when I was young, my parents didn't like us watching the TV program Grange Hill. Anyone of my era remember Grange Hill? My parents didn't like us watching that. They thought it would give us bad behavior at school. My mum told me, you shouldn't be watching Grange Hill. So I remember one particular day, my brother and I, we're in the lounge watching TV. I put on Grange Hill because she'd spoken to me. I put on Grange Hill and then very sneakily put my arm down on the remote control and slid it across the floor <laughs> to my brother. He didn't notice. So that then when my mum came in, Tim, I told you, what did I say? Not me, he's got the remote. 
sort of bit of sabotage. I get what I want, he gets in trouble. And some people think that's what's happening to Jonah here. He sort of partially goes. He goes because he knows the consequences if he doesn't. But as he goes, he sort of says, by the way, bad, bad, bad. <laughs> Not going to tell you the way out. Hoping that you therefore don't find it. Maybe that's what's happening. Either way, Jonah is a bit faithful. <laughs> partially fulfilling God's call on his life. But their response to that even in Jonah's weakness, is incredible. Verse 5, they believe God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. First the people, and then the king respond. And look at that response, verses 6 to 9. It's on the screen. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, remember that Nineveh is Sin City. This is like, you know, hardcore the king of this, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust, and he proclaimed those words. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish. This is incredible response, isn't it? If only an eight-word sermon would get that kind of response from the king. It's not only incredible, it's very funny. Animals in sackcloth. Can you imagine a little... little no, what animal was I doing? Um, uh, cows dressed in sackcloth. It's hilarious. There's a sort of caricature going on here to kind of draw out the enormity of their response. Now, we're going to get to the response in a moment. But on this coronation weekend, I think we can't move on from here without just a little observation about leadership and being the king. <laughs> I think it's worth reflecting on his response that the posture of leadership and the posture for the king is, should be a posture of humility. Any of you watched the coronation service less yesterday? I'm not a big royalist, but I noticed something. Some of the two of the bits that moved me most in the bits that I saw was the first person to speak to King Charles when he got in. Do you know who it was? That little boy. And this is what was said in that moment. The very first bit. The young boy says this, Your majesty, as children of the king of God, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings. And Charles, King Charles, said this, In his name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. And then, of course, in the moment in the service, do you see the other moving bit? Where he took off all that regalia and just in that shirt, as if to demonstrate to the world, and we hope he may live up to it, what is the appropriate posture for leadership under God? Humility. Might I humbly suggest to our new king and to our leaders, but also to all of us and including any of us in leadership positions, either in church, in work, in our family, whatever that means. Humility is being the first person, the quickest person to say sorry. It's the defining characteristic of a grace-changed life. If we're quick to defend ourselves so that we don't look bad, 
that says something about how we see ourselves and others. Friends, can I just humbly say, in the middle of church world where there are all sorts of scandals, if you have leadership in any sphere of life, please do not create a culture in which people can't be weak. It is anti-Christian, friends. Humility is the defining characteristic of a grace-changed life. And therefore, for us in leadership, we need to model that. So let's think about the Ninevites' response for a moment. Let's go back to those verses where the king kind of decrees to his nation. And it looks like they've had a complete change of heart, which is our third point. Do you notice that? There seems to be a genuine change of action. If you were here the first week, we were reflecting on how brutal Nineveh was. It was like the kind of godfather of brutality in the ancient world. Horrible stuff. And here, it looks like a complete change, 360. So often, I wonder, in our church circles, we presume that feeling sorry is what's important. And we never follow through on our feeling sorry and still just carry on doing the stuff that we know we all perhaps ought not to. I know what it's like to come to church regularly feeling inspired, challenged, buoyed up, and think, yeah, that was great, and then it makes no difference tomorrow. (laughs) The Ninevites' response, one of repentance, literally turning from one way to go another way, is a huge example to us. That's what repentance means, to turn from walking one way to go another. But here's the question for us. Was Nineveh's change, their change of heart, was that the complete picture? Was that all that God was looking for? Because look at the verses on the screen. Verses 8 and 9. This is what the king says. You can zoom in on it. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish. Two things to show to us that I think are worth dwelling on. The first is this. Do you notice the word God there? That word God is a very different word that was used in the first verse. You know where it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he went. That word Lord there, whenever you see it in capital letters in your Bible, that means the word Yahweh, the name of God. Whereas this word, when the king says it, it just means general God. First clue. He's turning away from violence. But is he turning to God? Because that's the second thing. What's the motivation for the king and for the Ninevites? What is it? The motivation is they don't want to get the consequences. They don't want to be zapped. Who knows? God may yet relent. So their motivation is not turning to. It's turning away from any consequences. Which takes us into the world of fake apologies or non-apology apologies. We live in a world, and we're certainly in our politics, where apologies are put up on statements, and you end up thinking, was that really an apology? I love this cartoon on the screen. 
with a guy saying, what flower says I'm sorry without admitting wrongdoing? Where we say sorry for actions, but the motivation for it is preservation of self. Simply to avoid the consequences rather than genuine sorrow and genuine change that lasts. We might not realize that we're doing it. But these kind of apologies is where the only reason for saying sorry is, is because we don't want the other person to not like us or to be cross with us or the consequences of whatever we have done. In other words, the consequences to make the other person feel better about me. Who's the focus on? Me. And for the Ninevites, it seems that maybe their sorrow is about preservation of self, rather than genuine sorrow that lasts. How do we know if we're giving a non-apology apology? Let me give an example. Here at Riverside, on our staff team, we've begun to do a little bit of work on how punctual we are to meetings. Don't know if this is your world as well. What commonly happens is meeting starts, someone arrives late, they say, sorry, I'm late. Everyone goes, it's fine, don't worry. Anyone done that? I certainly have. <laughs> so what happens is I do it a lot. Sorry, I'm late. Why am I saying I'm sorry I'm late? I'm really saying I'm sorry late so that I don't want the other people cross at me. And then them saying it's fine, that means we're all good. In other words, the reason for me saying sorry was not really caring about they were on time, I wasn't. It was actually my preservation. I just don't want them thinking bad Tim. And we do it in so many areas of life, don't we? Preachers say, I'm sorry that this sermon is long. Well, don't do it long then. <laughs> or we might give an apology, I'm sorry you feel that way. And so often, what we can actually be doing, in the words of Wade Mullen, an author who's looked at how organizations handle this kind of thing, is we choose to prioritize managing our image over managing the problem. Ooh, that stings. The apology is about us. In a sense, for Nineveh, the problem is not their sin. The problem is God who holds them responsible for their sin. And that's why they need to know the character of this God, which leads us to our fourth point, and it's this. Because God does relent from punishing them, He is a gracious God. Even if their apology is temporary, or even if their kind of repentance is not towards God, but is just away from the consequences, God is still beautifully gracious in that moment. Which leads us to one last crucial dimension for all of us, whether we're followers of Jesus or not. Look again at verse 9 and 10. It's the last verses in the, in the, in the chapter. So the king says, you remember, who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish. perish. And then the final verse in chapter 3 is, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now chances are, I'm guessing in our world, some of that language we find difficult about God. Fierce anger, 
perish, destruction, threatened. Most of us, if we're honest, don't like using those sorts of words about God. We prefer the other bits. Compassion. He relented. Am I right? Seemingly too different. God is angry and God is compassionate. How do we handle this? Well, I want to give a little illustration. I want to suggest we tend to put these two characteristics that the Bible does describe about God as being at sort of odds with each other. So you've got here, you know, words like love, grace, compassion, the, the stuff that goes on your fridge. Nice stuff. Quick, let's flip to the New Testament. Brilliant. But these bits that the Bible also talks about, anger and judgment, a bit awkward. So let's just live here. And what seems to happen in church world throughout history is you get Christians that kind of emphasize one or the other. We all know what we're talking about. You've got these guys who love talking about this. They don't go to many parties, but they love talking like this. But perhaps more in our world, you get the guys that, you know, God loves you just the way you are. Both Thoroughly biblical, thoroughly true. But I think in our society, we tend to put them as odds at each other. That they're sort of two warring bits within God. Is he going to be good God, nice God, or bad God? Or maybe it's just me. But properly understood, might I suggest, will see, help us to see them very differently. Let me give an example. Uh, author, speaker, Tim Mackey used an example. Imagine you're driving past a group of school kids, and there's 10 school kids, big kids, clearly beating up a small child. What happens within you? Anger rises, correct? Driving past, is that a loving thing? Because I don't want to show judgment against what's happening right now. Is it? Most of us go, I'm not sure. It's the old saying, isn't it? Hate is not the opposite of love. Apathy is. In that moment, what's loving? To make a judgment about what is happening and try and intervene so that that little child is not hurt, correct? Or think of the parents whose child is an addict and they've worked for decades battling with these kind of demons. And there's been moments of joy and brilliant, and then there's been dips. And then once again, after a year sober, clean, their loved child is at it again. What, ri what emotions rise within them? Anger, fury. Not because they don't love their child, but because they do love their child. Friends, might I humbly suggest these characteristics of God, the anger, the judgment, actually are characteristics of the love and grace and compassion of God. So why does God warn Nineveh? Is it because he just can't wait to zap them? No, he warns them so that they might turn away from their wrongdoing. And what happens when they do? He relents. Friends, do we see 
Anger and judgment in the context of a God who is love is exactly what we need. And I wonder sometimes in our culture, the reason we don't talk about this stuff is because we don't really think the consequences of our actions impact other people. Friends, might I humbly suggest we are in the wealthy part of the world. Our actions deliberately harm people around the world just by being us in the Western world. And if we think that doesn't matter, what we're really saying is we think God prefers us to them. What we need is a God who loves the whole world and somehow in all of his judgment of all of the wrong that only he can see steps in and deals with it all because of his love and grace and compassion, don't we? We need a God who relents. We need a God who because of his grace steps in and takes the hit for himself. As I close... Psalm 86 says these words. You, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Why is he slow? Well, Peter makes it clear in the New Testament. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everyone, even Nineveh, to come to repentance. So do you see that? God warns them because he's loving, gracious, and compassionate. So friends, as we come to a close this morning, we're going to respond. We're going to turn to our gracious and compassionate God. And I want to suggest there may be some of us, you know that you have been walking away from God. You've sensed, even this morning, a sense of, I want to, I want to go God's way. And you wonder how God feels about you. Take heart, full of compassion and grace. There may even be one or two people here this morning who, as we heard earlier, are wondering, is there a second chance? With God, there absolutely is. And it may be for you even this morning, this is your time to say yes to Jesus for the first time. Say, God, you haven't featured in my life and I've got millions of questions, but I know I'm in. I want to follow in your direction. And if that's you, in a moment, I'm going to pray and give you an opportunity to respond. But for the rest of us, I'm guessing there's also for some of us that sense of reminder that God loves, has got us. And therefore, once again, we might humbly say, God, I'm all in.